Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. It has to be helping the community. You know, nothing is about uh, straight up money play here, you know, because we believe if we can help the community learn first, engage first and get uh, the right information, the money will come. You know, so if you look at our product pages, there's tons of content on those pages. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World. We're back. It's Will. And Neil. What up, my man? Are you in recovery mode? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. Trying to trying to recover. I've been waiting all weekend to find out how was the haunted barn. Oh man, it was it was epic. We really outdid ourselves, Will. It was, uh, <laughs> if you do say so yourself. Yeah, if I do say so myself. It was amazing. Really? Yeah. We uh, we didn't really know what to expect. And, oh, you know, we had like a thousand people go through it. Just like random people, like trick-or-treaters? Yeah, trick-or-treaters and their families. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It started off, we didn't know if we were going to have any. And next thing you know, it, it was nonstop for two and a half hours. That is awesome. Thousand people will. A thousand. Starting a new tradition, leaving a lasting impact on those kids. For sure. We've already decided it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a tradition here on uh, Boggs Road. So you didn't get a chance to see it this year. It's going to be bigger and better next year. That's amazing. How how long did it take you to put it together? You know, we really only worked on it the last uh, two weeks, really. And then. Uh, pretty heavy day of free of charge right yeah free of charge uh we may have to charge admission next year as much uh <laughs> as much as uh, we're, we're out on spooky stuff so what what were you were you something i was pennywise <laughs> and i was just standing behind a camo net as people would walk through also where i was located there was a strobe light so it was kind of freaky and then all of a sudden i would appear in front of you and scare you to death <laughs> that is awesome yeah oh it's great yeah, like all of our kids worked it like they were loving it you know they would get behind people and just follow them and then scare <laughs> them to death it was awesome man i have to make it down next year i, I really felt bad though a couple of times like the kids were crying and the thing is i, I remember trick-or-treating when I was young and there was always a couple houses that the people would come to the door and they were just terrifying. And as a little kid, you're terrified. But if you're going through a haunted barn, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know what I mean? You can't yeah, feel bad about scaring them. Their parents were like, come on, come on. It won't be scary. <laughs> and then their parents are running from them. 
when they get in there and the kids like left behind. Like, the, parents, the parents are throwing, them, throwing their kids in front of them. A couple times, couple times I had to like give the kid a fist pump and say, it's going to be okay. As Penny was. Yeah, as Penny was. It was great. Super pumped to hear about it. Glad it turned out well. I got a couple little news items for you this week. Yeah, I was hoping so. Well, lots going on. I wanted to talk about real briefly recent legislation that try it's trying to get approved in the state of Ohio. A couple of lawmakers introduced a bill earlier this month. You know, we talked about the the governor set aside five hundred million dollars for Appalachian counties for economic development which is a lot of money and very needed for the area. That's already been approved. But a couple of lawmakers this month introduced a bill that would set aside $600 million for 58,000 students across 38 school districts in Appalachia, Ohio. And really, I think it's for the Ohio Facilities Construction Commission. It's really geared towards bringing the schools in Appalachia, Ohio, up to the 21st century to improve that, improve education across Appalachia, Ohio. I found it interesting. They introduced it because they wanted to make it more equitable. They were seeing a majority of the funds in Ohio going to urban areas as opposed to rural areas. In fact, several years ago, they passed a bill. It's called the Accelerated Urban School Building Assistance Program that funneled money into urban areas, but they forgot about the rural areas. So I think this is an important bill that they're trying to get passed, and I think it's a great idea. And then uh, one other piece of Appalachian news. We talked about the ARC Arise program several weeks ago, which is the Appalachian Regional Initiative for Strong Economies program. But I think it's one of the cooler programs that has been introduced by ARC over the last several years. The whole point of it is to bring states together. I think obviously with the 13 states in Appalachia, we definitely work stronger together than apart. And so this, in order to apply for a grant, it has to be a multi-state application working across state boundaries. But I wanted to mention it because earlier they had a webinar on it and they're getting ready to have a follow-up webinar to talk a little bit more about it and how you can apply successfully. And that's Tuesday, November 10th at 11 o'clock. All right. Where can I find that? Uh, You can find it at the Appalachian Regional Commission website. It is the Arise program. Just search for Arise, A-R-I-S-E. November the 10th. Gotcha. 11 a.m. Sounds good. Coming right up. That's really the only pieces of news I had for you today. Well, you know, it is hunting season, Will. Have you ventured out into the woods lately? I was going to talk about that. Yeah, um, it is getting to be deer season yeah, pretty much everywhere. I haven't. I haven't. How, how about you? As you know, I've been uh, I've been pretty busy, but starting to kind of get that itch, wondering if you were going to come down and, and take me like, like, like the good old days. I remember going... I don't think you ever had the privilege of going on uh, deer hunting trips with dad. No, you guys never took me. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not scarred from it. I never killed a deer with dad. It was one of my favorite memories, but you know, the heritage of hunting is, is huge in Appalachia. It's more than trophy hunting. It's really for sustenance or a long time. It has been, I think these days, you know, it's all about deer hunting, but growing up, we ate squirrel. 
Mm-hmm. I, I had a buddy in high school that would stay up all night and go coon hunting and then show up the next day and sleep all day during school. Yeah, that's still that's still pretty prevalent. It's just a way of life, especially where we're from in Appalachia. It's a big deal to a lot of people. Those people are tied together through their love for hunting. You know, I got a German short hair pointer. Derby, my dog. Uh-huh. Um, first time I kind of got him as a hunting dog. But the first time I took him upland hunting for birds, I thought I had him trained well enough to, to go. He likes to run. He's got a lot of hunt in him. So as soon as you let him go, he'll hunt. But I thought I had him trained that he would also come back. <laughs> Man, first I'm still time, hunting. First time I took him, I let him out of the truck, still had him on a leash. As soon as I let that leash go, <laughs> there he goes like a bullet. And he goes, and he goes, and he goes. The first two hours of my hunting trip were spent looking for derby. (laughs) Two hours? Two hours. So I walked all through the woods looking for him. I had people helping me look for him. Two hours later, I get back to the barn where I started, and there he was waiting on me. (laughs) Of course. Man knows where to go. So you had these people looking for him for two hours, and they were like, does this guy not? tracker on his dog that's the thing i had his collar on but it wasn't working oh do you think they like made fun of you as an amateur absolutely Absolutely. (laughs) did they they do it to your face or behind your back behind my back for sure (laughs) they absolutely made fun of me i finished out the hunt the last hour of the hunt but (laughs) as soon as i left I guarantee I was the laughing stock. The hunt was was the two hours you spent trying to find your dog. <laughs> was no hunt. You know, you mentioned before hunting and the heritage in Appalachia and how it's really a way of life. But then you look at these social media platforms these days and it almost derails hunters or wants to shame hunters. A lot of people look down upon hunting, especially outside the region. If you're Appalachian, you get it. But if you're not, then, you know, you're just killing something and it's it's not cool. Especially when we're talking about inclusion. Inclusion obviously is a big part of society today it's really an important aspect to a lot of things and one of those things should be around hunting hunting is a sport that has been around for generations in, in Appalachia majority of the people that hunt do it in a sustainable manner some of the biggest hunters I know are conservationists and a lot of these families will in Appalachia it's not necessarily a sport it's a tradition in their family and it's yeah. it's a trip that they have planned all year with members of their family and it's kind of uh, it's kind of a gathering it's kind of a, a way of life like you already said it's more than just a sport to them it's it's a uh, kind of the beginning of the end of the year and it's you know a trip with granddad or a trip with their brother or a trip with their family member or their trip with their son so it's something that they're they do to create memories yeah absolutely you and i have gone deer hunting and some of the better memories that i have i hope to carry that tradition on to my son or daughters yeah or daughters yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of ladies in Appalachia that are that are big hunters. It's a family tradition in a, in a lot of ways in this area in general. 
You know, I think a lot of us hunters need a way to tell people about our hunt or to get connected with other people that that hunt. And the the guy that we're going to have on tonight, I guess he kind of took that thought and went to to another level with it, Will. Yeah, Brad Luttrell with Go Wild. It's a social media app dedicated to just that to the hunting community, to allow them a space to connect, tell their hunting stories, learn from each other. You can also shop for gear on there. It's really a free social community to help outdoor enthusiasts improve their skills, find better gear, gear, and earn rewards. I'm not the best person to tell you about the social media network, Will. Let's not hear it from me, but let's get it, let's get it straight from Brad, who can tell us all about the development of this app and just what all it can do and why you should be a part of this community. Absolutely. Let's find out more about Go Wild. Let's do it. On the show today, we have the co-founder and CEO of Go Wild, Brad Luttrell. He is a fellow Appalachian and Go Wild is a social media app for the outdoorsmen and outdoors women. Gear Junkie named it the app of the year in 2021. So Brad, we wanted to thank you for your time and appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, appreciate it guys. And shout out to my team. We just got app of the year by the Android police for uh, fishing apps. So Nice. Uh, they're, they're still racking up some nice awards. It's an excellent app, which obviously we're going to get into. But as most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition, our family, we're big on tradition too. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually it's this huge spread of appetizers bigger than the actual holiday meal. But we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday <laughs> dish? Uh, holiday dish, it's sweet potato casserole. My family, we don't really do appetizers at all. It's more like save it all for dinner and then you just eat until you're ready to die. Like you're just going to roll <laughs> over and die after the holidays. As far as like tr traditions go, I'd say my mom, like the weekend is breakfast. I mean, it's going to be like an hour. She's going to sit down or, or stand and make gravy and biscuits. She's going to make eggs, bacon, sausage, and then you'll have your first round with your biscuits. And then biscuits are also dessert because you're going to do either apple butter or honey and butter mix. So that's like our big family tradition is to go all out on breakfast to the point to where, you know, I married into a family from Chicago. And I remember the first time I stayed with them, uh, we sat down for breakfast and I, I was sitting there, she, her mom lays the pancakes out and she's like, here's breakfast. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. Where's the rest of it? You know, cause <laughs> like we, we cover a table, like a seven foot long table with everything. Um, I mean, it could be hash browns. It's like, you're going to have 12 different things for, for breakfast. So, uh, I think it's safe to say that Appalachia is just all about food regardless though. Right. I've even been joking recently. You guys probably from like the tech world have heard of the burning man, like everybody goes out and they all go into the, the desert and drink and do drugs for a bunch of like for a while celebrating art and culture. Yeah. And I've been joking that in Appalachia, we need to start a heart burning man where we just, it's like nothing but smoke food, gravy and biscuits and, you know, all of our diet, the poke salad, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That'll kill you if you don't cook yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think we grew up in the same family. Every, yeah. every Sunday after church, it was huge breakfast. Uh, now after church on Sundays, we would do a big breakfast on like Saturday, Sunday. And then after church, it was like usually fried chicken. I mean, yeah. we were stereotypical Baptist. 
<laughs> we had we had three restaurants on Sunday after church. If it wasn't breakfast, it was KFC, Pizza Hut, or the hospital. Yeah, we we had very few restaurants. Uh, Millsboro had more than a lot of cities around us. But funny enough, we had like a KFC and a, a Lee's. Like you know, like that's how much we love fried chicken. <laughs> So, Brad, now that we have that question out of the way, we want to ask you, obviously, about Go Wild. You know, I mentioned it was a social media app, but obviously I didn't mention really what it is. Can you uh, let our listeners know what Go Wild is for those that don't know and just uh, how it came to be? Yeah. And, you know, what's what's cool is our region was so core to the founding of this product. Uh, it's really something that I still take pride in. Anytime anybody asks me to tell the story of how it came to be, I always start off in Bell County because I was I was hunting and came up with this this idea. I was I was already trying to figure out my next move for business. I wanted to create something and I was working at an ad agency here in Louisville. I, I knew like for years I was going to found a company. And I had thought of all kinds of stuff. I mean, you should see the amount of URLs I own. It's stupid, right? Of all these ideas you have and you buy the URL and then you sit on it for, you know, 10 years. But at that time, I was scouting a field in Bell County. You know how the roads are, like winding through. And I'd, I'd driven back out there and uh, I, was, I was, it was August. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't know if I even get a deer if I'm going to post this on Facebook because Facebook in, in 2016, you know, you go back to 2016, that, that was the nastiest we had ever treated each other on social media. That's the Trump Hillary election. And it was not a good time to, to like to for humanity online. Right. I think we could all argue that four years later in 2020, it got worse. But at that time, like things were horrible and I, I people were trolling hunters and it was just had become a really rough landscape. And I thought, I was like, man, what a shame that you can't even talk about something you love, right? Like I loved deer hunting, even though I sucked at it. And the other the other realization was the fact that I did suck at it. I really wanted to be able to find other people that did what, what I wanted to do and to be able to ask them questions regionally. You know, hunting in Kentucky is way different than you get on these forums and stuff. And you start reading about whitetail hunting and then they're talking about cacti. And I'm like, well, dude, I don't. I have no idea what that's like. Right. And I finally, I did get to hunt in Texas. It is totally different than what we do in Kentucky. So that's the genesis of it. You know, that year I started building this team, got co-founders and we, you know, from my basement with 500 bucks started building this company. And what it became at first was a social platform where you could connect with people regionally. Like that was the, the focus was to let you across whatever you wanted to do, you know, whether it's hunting or uh, whitetail hunting, turkey hunting, bass fishing, fly fishing, we started off about 50 topics. We're up to about 70 today that you can explore and, you know, really dive into uh, talking to other people around around the, the subject matter you love. Right. You can post your trophy, it pins to your profile, that kind of stuff. And over the years, just really recognize that people love gear. So today, when I introduce what it is, you know, in podcast, we got a little bit longer format. I can take a little bit of time to talk about the genesis of it. You know, my 90 second elevator pitch or even less is just that. Go Wild's a, a social platform that lets you connect with others around what you love to do. And you can actually see the gear that people are using in the field. And you can see that content on the product pages. You can buy that those products. And as you engage and shop, you earn rewards all along the way. So you can get free stickers or free t-shirts, but you also can get 25% off Vortex products or, you know, along the way there's, it's kind of like a video game as you, as you're interacting with it, you're unlocking these new levels. We have a point system. So you're constantly earning rewards on our platform. Are you a tech guy? Uh, hmm. is, that your, is that your background or, you know, obviously this is a tech company. Yeah. I could not program my way out of a brown paper bag, dude. Uh, the, 
genesis of this was that I was a creative. Um, I was a creative director at an agency. I worked really closely with a guy named Donovan, who was a co-founder of Go Wild. Donovan is a user experience designer. Basically, he's the guy doing the branding and the the experience within the platform. So the, where the menus are and that kind of stuff. So I partnered with him. Another co-founder is Zach, who eventually would become our president too, but Zach was our chief uh, analytics officer. So, you know, social media apps create a mountain of content and people, because of the last few years have become really anti-algorithm, but they don't really know what that means. You can't just have a platform that doesn't do some level of filtering at a certain scale. And I knew we would eventually get there. So Zach had to build a content model to be able to to say, you know, oh, Will likes fly fishing. I'm going to try to show Will more of what he likes, right? Uh, and then I have Chris Glime, who is the chief development officer. And Chris was an iOS developer. And today he still develops our iOS products. So if you're on iPhone, that's literally still directly built by Chris. Uh, but he also runs a little bit out ahead of our team scouting, you know, any kind of new technologies we might integrate. But I'm, I'm the creative sales and marketing side of the house. Nice. I grew up. Like, like most people in central Appalachia, grow up late, late fishing, bass fishing. Yeah. When I moved to Northeast Ohio, it was all about fly fishing. So yeah. I, I dipped my toes into fly fishing and I really wish I had an app like <laughs> Go Wild, you know, because it's totally different. And I knew nothing about yeah. fly fishing and I still yeah. am terrible at both. <laughs> yeah. Well, everything I know about fly fishing, I've learned through Go Wild either. Well, partially my, one of my team members now is great at it. Um, and actually our retreat in 2019, we went to Missouri and, and fished a lot of the the famed rivers there uh, and got to learn from Mark Van Patten, who's a really well-known, literally wrote the book on fly fishing. So I still would say I, I, I haven't done it a lot since then. I usually end up, like you said, bass fishing for where I am. Uh, a lot of my guys will go out and still bass fish with a fly rod, but I'm, I always tell them it's kind of like bow hunting and rifle season. You're just adding unnecessary challenges. I suck. <laughs> I don't need, I don't need those extra challenges of the fly rod. So, you know, I just st stick to my spinning reel for right now. <laughs> you talked about, you know, 2016 and especially in the business world, we live in an inclusive environment. Obviously everyone wants to be inclusive until you're not, you, you know, until it's not. And and that may play into what you were talking about, people discrediting hunting or, you know, some of the things that you love to do. I guess the question is, what are some of the misconceptions about hunting that people really just don't understand? You know, where we're from, it, it's a way of life for some people, you know, people love it. And other people outside of that region don't understand it. Do you have some of the best biggest misconceptions in that regard? The start of that question, you started hitting on something I think as a society we we really struggling with. You know, you, over the last couple of years, we've seen more push for diversity. A lot of that's been focused on race. And I think there's there's less discussion around diversity of thought and diversity of culture. I mean, diversity of politics, right? Like we live in such a polarized world, partially because of social media. I've read all the books. I mean, any social platform you want to talk about, I can tell you how they've helped screw up humanity, right? I mean, Twitter, Reddit, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, there's books on all of them, and they all go really deep at the core of what they are and how they became what they did. And they've all fueled this polarization because these algorithms, they all look for interest. TikTok's the same way. TikTok's the latest, greatest example. You spend, you know, if you, you onboard onto TikTok and within 30 minutes, it knows a lot more about you than you realize. And, and people think, well, I didn't 
take any actions to tell it that I like to do this. And it's because it's not looking at what you clicked on per se, it's how long you spent on a certain type of content, right? That That's very telling. That's one of the LinkedIn's most powerful, like they look for the content you spend the most time with. So these algorithms, you know, start to slowly carve off our exposure to other ideals, right? I'll pick like a totally different use case. My, my wife, mother of three, the social platforms know that she's a mother and that all she gets is mom tips. And if she were to pull out her Instagram, it, it's catering 100% to the, what it, it knows that she's going to interact with and like, right? Like it's got her figured out. These mommy bloggers are all over her feed to the point when I had social platforms, I was getting ads for stuff that she, she was interacting with. Cause that's all they're pumping to her. And it doesn't take long before you stop being exposed to people that are different than you. And this is where, like as a hunter, you live in these bubbles on these platforms. We'll go to the other end of the spectrum and say vegans. And if you're a vegan, you're getting a lot of vegan content. You're getting uh, you know, health tips and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, if you accidentally come into contact with hunting, it's out of nowhere. It, it, if, if your friend comments on it and it shows up in your feed or something, it, it creates this dynamic where it's really shocking, right? Whereas if you're at a house party and you're just kind of going through and mingling and talking to everybody and you're a vegan and, and you meet somebody that's a hunter, you can, you're probably going to slowly figure that out. You're slowly going to, you're going to like other aspects of them too, right? But everything is so polarized and we end up in these these echo chambers, you know, that that align with things we like. And then the algorithm knows that it, you're going to engage with those. And the longer you engage, the more money they make. So they're built to, you know, improve time on site is the the big metric. So when you run into this stuff, it's like people are bound to have arguments. It's going to explode in your face. Uh, you, you know, it's going like if you're hardcore Bernie Sanders guy and all of a sudden a Trumper shows up in your feed, it's like gas and, and a match, right? Because because the these algorithms haven't done a good job of showing all the gray area in between. You know, going from Bernie to Trump leaves most of America out of that picture, right? Just I, I'm not showing up here to talk politics. Don't worry, audience. We're not going to go down that route. I'm just using it as a very familiar <laughs> example. Hunting is the same way. You know, the it's not 80% of Americans, maybe 85% don't care about hunting. Like they don't care. They don't think about it. Uh, they would say you should be able to do it, but there, there's like a side of it that people uh, of people that are hardcore against it, I think it's around five to 8% somewhere in there. And then you got another, you know, there's 15 million people that hunt. And so the misconceptions are like that vegan, I could meet at a house party. I guarantee you, we would probably come out of this saying like, oh, wow, we're way more aligned than you would think. Right. In fact, I, I've worked with vegan coworkers before, and funny enough, I found a lot more in common with them than people that just like would motor through McDonald's cheeseburgers or who just consume and have no thought about the impacts on the environment. My, I kind of drive my wife crazy because as a hunter, I think about throwing away that Costco chicken a lot differently than she does. Like if we don't eat it to her, it was $5 to me. It's like something died, you know? Uh, and I know what death is like, right? Like I've, uh, I'm a bit of a purveyor of death in some ways as a hunter. And the thing that everyone else seems to mis misunderstand is to think it's all about 
the death, but hunters, you know, really care about the, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them really care about the environment. We're picking up trash on the way back out from the deer stand. You know, I think we, we will volunteer for a conservation day to go out. Uh, we take pride in the fact that a lot of our money goes back into the government. A lot of people don't know that, that, you know, you buy a, a deer tag, you buy a duck stamp, that money goes in through, uh, in directly to your state to help pay for the biologists to monitor all of this wildlife, these wild lands. Like, like a lot of people, <laughs> you're talking about misconceptions. People think that we at this point can just like let nature be. Like, dude, you get you want to talk about letting nature be. Look at suburban sprawl. Look at all these interstates where we've cut off migration patterns. Look, look at the impacts we're having on nature itself. You can't do all that and then say like, nah, hands off. You guys shouldn't be able to hunt. Like down in Georgia, they're so overpopulated with deer that they're having to pay people to shoot deer because they're eating the crops. And, and like literally vegan food, right? <laughs> so it's like you can't not do some of these things. So I think a lot of the misconception of hunters is that it's it's all like a bloodthirsty sport and that we only care about this trophy. Whereas actually studies show that most people care more about the food, the, the engagement with nature, and honestly, the family bond well before the, the rack of antlers. I mean, there are people that are trophy hunters, but I've yet to meet a deer hunter who doesn't eat the deer. Like everybody eats the deer meat. It's great. Now, you know, we, we could go into the Africa conversation. That's a whole other thing. Here in the United States, in general, 99% of your hunters are going to be like really under, like they're going to eat the meat that they kill. Some of the biggest hunters I know are veterinarians and conservationists. That's the thing that people don't realize the Pittman Robertson act, man. I mean, we, we have 11% of our firearm sales and that's even if you're buying firearms without going hunting, that money's funneling in to a fund that get, then gets divvied up among the states based on their performance. All of this stuff was set up willingly by hunters back after market hunting. Now I will say hunters did kind of ruin things back in the Daniel Boone era. Uh, Daniel Boone came into Kentucky back down where I'm from and then proceeded to just like kill everything in sight, not just him, but literally that era of hunters um, really made a long road for us on repairing some of this. But hunting is what brought back the white-tailed deer. People think now they're so overpopulated. It's like hard for our generation to ever think about the fact that they weren't here. Turkeys are the same way. The American alligator, like we've brought back tons of species to higher populations than they ever were before you know it's one of the some of the greatest conservation stories ever were made possible by hunters saying like whoa we got to actually limit what we're doing here you talked about the misconceptions and we really started this podcast to dispel some of the misconceptions about appalachia and where we grew up in in uh, central appalachia and eastern kentucky you know we we always made the joke when we were younger when the end of the world comes just go to eastern kentucky because you know we're always 10 20 years yeah. behind yeah. <laughs> everyone else I actually think it's changing, obviously, lately, even in the tech world, it's changing in eastern Kentucky and central Appalachia throughout all, all Appalachia. My question is, you know, you started this app. Obviously, I think you went to undergrad at University of Kentucky. I did. But now you live in Louisville and you started the app. Is this something that you could have started in eastern Kentucky or the resources you think there? Are they there now? Uh, could someone start something like this in central Appalachia? That's an awesome question. And no one's ever asked me that. So yes, you could totally do this now here. There are challenges. I mean, let's just, we'll, we'll walk through this process. So I remember pre COVID my cousin wanted to learn web design and he was doing some small business website design freelance. And at that time, I remember talking about this with, with my mom and I said, he's going to struggle to find businesses there that want to do this. He needs to be in a city because a part of what happens is 
uh, small town dynamics and something like for around something like what he was doing and building a website for a business as an agency guy here in Louisville pre pandemic, we built websites mostly for companies that were here in Louisville. You're working off of that network. Small towns are that, you know, even more so you're really, you know, it's hard to be discovered. It again, this is pre COVID. It was harder to be discovered. You're not having those run-ins at networking events. There's, there's less, uh, happenstance meetings and things that kind of make some of that possible. Some of those are still barriers today. You know, just like I am, I'm in Louisville. It's not like this is the greatest tech city of all time either. I mean, I think we've come a long ways, but if I lived on a coast, there would be far more events for me to go to. There's just a nucleus there that doesn't exist here. Just the same way that in Louisville, you don't necessarily have that in these rural areas. Can you do it? Yes, you could definitely like internet connections are, are great now. Like when I was growing or not growing up, I mean, I didn't, didn't use the internet in Eastern Kentucky till fourth grade, but like, I remember in high school, the internet connections were still kind of rough in Eastern Kentucky. And, you know, it's like the last place that they, they were able to get even decent cell phone service. And there's still plenty of areas where that's questionable. But I think to a point now, put the inverse of that on, would I have any concerns of hiring someone in that area? No, I think we've, we've actually tried before because uh, I think it'd be one of the coolest things to work with one of these programs that have, you know, taken engineering coal, mine, uh, coal miners and turned them into like bit uh, source. Yeah, like engineers. I mean, it's still an engineering mindset of solving a problem. So a lot of these guys who were either trained or learned in the mines and become a mining engineer, whether by degree or by trade, are incredibly smart. And it makes sense that they would translate really well into that. Uh, so I think there's been a lot of success on that front. Starting the business, though, the, the thing you you would run into uh, is just, again, lack of mentors, lack of ability to meet up easily with people for lunches. Or, or whatnot. And again, I'm not saying like you can't do it or you shouldn't try. I'm just, these are realistic barriers that you're going to face. The cool thing is I can hop on a zoom now video calls. I don't, I don't know if you guys, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this. Like they weren't a thing before COVID. Nobody wanted to do a video call. Video calls right. sucked. People stressed out about them. So if nothing else, the barrier has gone. Um, I mean, I met with, uh, Jeff Marietta with uh, Invest 606 on a Zoom call. That's how we know each other is is through email and on Zoom. I've never met him in person, but you know the networking was there, and I'm hoping to eventually help him with mentoring or something. You know, I think that those channels. It's if if ever it was going to happen, it's now, right? Like now's the time that you could do that. Where I think pre-COVID, the barriers would have been a little higher. When you were dreaming up Go Wild, did you ever imagine that it would get to where it is now, and where do you see it in the next two three years? I didn't imagine that it would get to the word is now in the sense of the business model. I mean, COVID completely destroyed our business model. The plan was to build a really great network that understood the member or the user in tech terms better than anybody else because we we have what's called first party data. People tell us they like whitetail hunting because it makes their experience better. And then we were like, well, if you're telling us you like whitetail hunting, I can show you ads for whitetail hunting and that makes sense, right? It's a win-win for everybody. I would much rather see that than the fact that my wife's on the same IP address and she's looking at shoes on Amazon and now I'm getting targeted for shoes because they're clustering the house and like all this creepy stuff that digital marketing does. I, that's what I used to do in the past is like we would do all those really advanced search tactics to find people. With Go Wild, the plan was just to, we know you like to fly fish or whitetail hunt or whatever it is, and we can help you get better at that through connecting you to brands. So COVID hits, ad budgets get decimated, people get laid off, inventory goes down the tube. Advertising was just dead. 
from March on, it never came back really for us. So we went 90 days, had our worst quarter ever in Q2 2020, like embarrassingly bad revenues. And we're like, okay, we got to figure something else out. So we came up with the, well, we have all this data on gear because you could tag the gear you were using. Let's just go talk to those brands and see if they'll let us sell the products. And we did. And we basically built a shop in 60 to 90 days, the ability to buy the gear through our platform. So I had no idea we were going to do that. I mean, that was never in the business plan. It was never on my radar. There's something that just kind of slowly evolved. That was the first part of the question. The second part of the question was next three years, I think. For the Go Out brand, I think you'll start to see, or this year was the first year we really focused on events event marketing and brand activation. So we wanted to pull our digital brand into the real world. So we started doing consumer shows. We, we've always done trade shows, but those are industry shows. Consumers can't get into those. We did the biggest consumer show in the country this year. We just right straight into the biggest one. Uh, so that, like as our first show that we had a, a big booth at. So 200,000 people come to the Great American Outdoor Show up in Pennsylvania, which is still on the Appalachian Mountains in Harrisburg. That was a really cool experience. And that was a first for us. We're going back in February. It's a brutal show. It's eight days long. We were wow. up there for two weeks and we're going to do that again. And I think we're going down to National Wild Turkey Federation next year. So if anybody's going to Nashville for that show, we'll be there. Uh, it's an awesome show. One of my favorite, probably, probably my favorite consumer show is the National Wild Turkey Federation show. It's so fun. The other thing was doing a festival and having a, and a way for our members to meet up and engage. We used to do those pre-COVID and, you know, we would get 100 to 200 people together really just meetups but the idea of like go wild is a place where you can learn you can connect and you can buy and we wanted to bring all that into a real world event so this year we did our first send it slam we had cole cheney headlined it he was a you know guy guy from appalachia who's blowing up we had justin wells abby hamilton dave shoemaker and dalton mills play so a lot of Kentuckians playing there, Dave and Dalton, they're both Bell County guys. Abby's from Nicholasville, I think, uh, and, and then Justin's from Lexington. So, But they all played this festival after a 3D archery tournament. We had 25 brands there. We had uh, Country Boy Brewing and West Six was there. So that went great. You know, I think we had 450 people come out to that event. I th we, we had more tickets sold than what showed up because it rained until like 4 o'clock that day. But overall, it was great. It was in Louisville. So next year, I can't say where it's going to be yet. We're, we're finalizing. I think I'll know here in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to do that again next year. And then after after that, the plan is to start opening up a new state every year. And I'm hoping to get up to like 10 of these throughout the country that you can go. And you can go to Senate Slam and you can meet up with other Go Wild members. You can meet the brands. Uh, some of our brands will be given demonstrations and, and that kind of stuff. That's kind of the vision for it is to really just bring the concept of the, the, the brand into the real world. So those were this year and going two or three years out. I, I, I don't know for sure. I think there's a chance that there'll be some some level of retail experience with our brand within the next three years. As we've grown, we added 5,000 products to our system last week. We're adding 15, 10 or 15,000 this week. We're adding probably another 40,000 by the end of the year in products that you can buy. As we scale that footprint, one thing we're talking about with as the company grows in size and we need more office space, we're in a very small office here in Eastern Louisville right now. I think there's a chance that we'll open up into a hybrid small retail experience and have our office space there and a small warehouse there. We don't really want to become like a Academy Sports where we're everywhere and this like giant super retailer. That's not really the vision for the company. But to to expand, go wild into here in Kentucky, at least to have the HQ be have more of a retail focus. And then beyond that, 
Um, I think over the next few years, we really want to continue to be a platform that's supporting creators. You know, we've really leaned into that over the last few years. We work really closely with podcasters as an example. We have focused on supporting them through media sponsorships, through paying them for their content that goes into our platform. I would like to automate some of that and really like TikTok's done a great job at that. YouTube's done a great job at that. YouTube has the most sophisticated creator payment system on the planet. I don't think we'll get there, but I think we could, that's not really the core of our business like it is them, but that's something I'd love to do more of is to support people who are educating uh, other people on how to hunt and fish. I think I think you'll see more activations, some level of a HQ activation and then support for our creators who are helping our community. I mean, really at the end of the day, before we even talk about making money, like the core of what we do is it has to be helping the community. You know, nothing is about uh, straight up money play here, you know, because we believe if we can help the community learn first, engage first and get uh, the right information, the money will come, you know? So if you look at our product pages, there's tons of content on those pages. You can look up like a vortex binocular or something. You'll see what I'm talking about. And you know, the, the community first mindset really showcases on those, those profiles. We're kicking Bass Pro's butt on collecting information around products that is helpful in the past. You could go into a store and talk to a guy who had maybe done this for 30 years and was really knowledgeable, but that's not necessarily the modern experience at a lot of these big box stores anymore. You, it's hit or miss. You know, you might find someone that's got 20 years of experience and knows what they're doing, but you also might find a 19 year old who just took a job and is just trying to uh, pay rent, right? So it's not necessarily the place you want to decide on if that's the right thousand dollar scope for you. We're really trying to automate a lot of that to where you can do it from your couch. You know, I, I, if I can educate you on your couch and get you outside the next day, that's what we want to do. To, to that point of community, you know, obviously the hunting community is a very dedicated community in and of itself. But you also have, I don't think you've spoken to this, but you also have a reward system on your platform. It, was that put in place to build community in the beginning? Yeah, we uh, last year we launched our reward system. It's been the most popular single feature we've done. As you can imagine, everybody likes free stuff. <laughs> and uh, you do get free stuff through it. I mean, if you guys want to download the app, you go to downloadgowild.com. You go through a couple hoops and you'll start getting free stickers. And then I think there's a free shirt in there at a certain point and really steep discounts. You know, you'll get five dollar gift cards here and there. I mean, it's literally free. We we did that to at, at the realization of, you know, if you use Facebook, it, you know that Facebook is mining your data to make money, right? Like that's what they do. That is the core business model. That is still where their bread and butter is made. It's how they make billions of dollars is mining your data and selling you ads against it. We said, what if we, and, you know, instead of um, what's the opposite of that, really? Like, what is the opposite of that? So if someone uses our platform, we do understand that you like whitetail hunting and we're going to try to sell you some whitetail gear. That's also helpful because you're getting gear as a result of that. But as you use the platform, is there a way that we can really reward you for that in a way that doesn't happen on these other platforms? So it's a weird hybrid reward system. I've never seen anything else like this. And um, I'm pretty sure one doesn't exist because our uh, CPA tried to find something like this to model the accounting side off of no one could find anything like it. It's kind of an accounting nightmare, or we thought it was going to be when we started it. But as you post and share on Go Wild, you get points. Points build up on your profile. If you purchase, you also get points. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say, I think it's five points per dollar, but don't hold me to that. But whatever you're spending, it's going on to your profile. It's not like airline miles where you cash in your points. You're unlocking rewards along the way. Rewards sit on your profile for 30 days. You can redeem them at any point in that 30 days. If you don't redeem them in 30 days, they're gone, which is again, a part of the accounting design. 
Uh, we, we have to have an expiration date on those, but the, you know, the whole concept was how can we give back to people for just, if, if, even if they're not purchasing just for using the platform, how can we help them at, and just kind of say thank you back. And, and, you know, obviously the, the system had to be designed in a way that makes money and that's where the discounts and stuff are that, you know, they're, they're, we're incentivizing purchases along the way, but I think everybody likes to save, you know, 10% off here and there, 20% off here and there. Um, you'll get $5 gift cards here and there. So over time it's, you know, we're seeing more and more people who are begging us to add brands because they love the reward system. They'd rather buy it through us if they can earn rewards along the way. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly why we built it was to keep people thinking of us first. We, we talk about it all the time on this show, doers. You know, a lot of people have ideas. Ideas are great. But unless you're a doer, unless you actually go through with that idea, activate that idea, then it's really just an idea. When, when I've moved outside the region, I think I carry kind of, I won't necessarily say a chip, but if you want to say that, a chip on my shoulder, just being where we're from, just knowing how pe other people perceive me. Is that something that has carried you in regards to moving out of the region and, and building this business to where it is? Yeah, I would say I'm spiteful. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of joke uh, I've had a lot of people who have pitched hundreds of investors and you know, shocker, we don't have hundreds of investors. We've been told no hundreds of times. It's not always the friendliest thing either. You know, I've pitched a lot of people on the coast. I've pitched people down in Texas uh, in some of these tech hubs. And I think a lot of people do see these crazy kids from Appalachia that are doing, or rural Kentucky and Indiana, at least. Um, I'm the only one that's from Appalachia. But, the you know, my other co-founders are from rural Kentucky too. Nobody's from Louisville per se. It's Owensboro or Shepherdsville or yeah. Zach's from rural Indiana and grew up in cornfields and all very similar upbringings. And I think um, over time, we've kind of racked up a list of people mentally who, you know, one day when we're, we're finally for sure have made it, you know, they're going to get a box of donuts and a little thank you note for motivating us along the way. I've had business leaders who are investors at big companies that you would know here in town who I've pitched and laughed at me. They've told us this would never work. We don't know what we're doing. Um, that we're destined to fail. I've had them call investors and tell them they're stupid for giving us money. I try not to let that impact me in a way that, you know, I don't want it to be negative. I don't want it to impact me and, and, and say like, they're right. I never want to try to, I never want to give into that more than anything. I, I do keep a mental list of those. I'm going to prove them wrong. Yeah. You know, that's, that's really what it motivates me. And, uh, it's probably, not the healthiest of relationships, but I, I think um, any founder I've talked to, there's ones that stand out. There's probably ones I've forgotten too, but there's some people that have been almost derogatory about it. And, you know, they, they definitely keep you motivated, but you were talking about like the risk, you know, jumping out on your own and doing something like this is, is risky and it takes a certain type of a doer. You said, I've also heard it called mentally unstable. Apparently entrepreneurs have a, a like cross wiring where our risk assessment is just not the same as everybody else's, which like, it's literally true that the, according to this researcher, I talked to one time, she wanted to interview me and I didn't know what we were uh, going to talk about. And then, uh, it was more exploratory and I'm like, Okay, cool. And she's she at the end of it was just talking about how entrepreneurs literally have less perception of risk than most people. We we hear you're a music guy, so a couple of questions. The most incredible lineup I've ever seen was this past year's Bourbon and Beyond Festival. Yeah. Did you go to that? And also, have you been to Laurel Live yet? Laurel Cove. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been to the two of the three Laurel Coves. I went this year. 
Um, in fact, might try to convince John Grace to let me have a tent for Go Wild. We might do our retreat down there for Laurel Cove next year. Nice. We haven't decided yet, but um, that's in discussion because that show, I think that's the best two days of music ever. I mean, it's just like there's no, which it's my taste. That's like, you know, I'm I'm into all those people that they bring in. There's very few of them that I don't know. And usually the ones I end up discovering through Laurel Cove are amazing. You know, I mean, it's so mind boggling to me that there's so much talent. Where else would you see like Neil Vincent Emerson on the small stage at like 10 o'clock at night? You know, that I went, I walked down there last year or this year and I, I was like, how is this guy not on the big stage? But it's because John has so much talent at that thing. I think they have a hard time figuring out where to put everybody. If you haven't been to Laurel Cove, it is as close to like a Woodstock vibe of like family. Everybody's friendly. There's no drunk fights. There's no, there's nothing like that there. It's so chill. It is the like, we're all here to take care of each other and have a great time vibe. Um, I hope it always stays that way as it scales and grows. You know, I think, I think at this current pace, they could probably stay there at that Laurel Cove Amphitheater for a while. I don't know how big they want to make that thing, but um, I should probably stop telling everybody it's the greatest thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, but but it is. It's it's Laurel yeah. Cove. I mean, you, you had Kelsey Walden. Uh, you had Nick Jamerson. Charles Wesley Goblin closed out an incredible night. If you haven't seen Charles Wesley Goblin live, it's like it's a he is one of the tightest performers I've ever seen. And I say tight, not from like oh that's tight. I mean like their set is so practiced and tight. They, 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 those guys just don't screw up anything along the way. It's an incredible set. I saw, uh, I saw him here in Cleveland and, and he ended with take me home country road. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of Clevelanders, the entire place was yeah. just singing. <laughs> yeah, dude. Not West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. He did that at Laurel Cove and, uh, several of the guys like Dave Shoemaker and them came out and sang it with him and he invited them out. Where did you see him with Zach Bryan? No, I wish. Okay. No. Yeah. He's touring a lot with Zach right now. Charles is on go wild. He doesn't post a ton, but, uh, I, he posted a, a couple weeks ago. I saw I remember seeing him like post about fly fishing, but I've gotten to be buddies with him and saw him at Laurel Cove. And that's one of the coolest things. The headliner was standing there selling his own stickers, you know, and those guys don't necessarily do that at other shows. It's just that that's kind of the family vibe. And they all, it's the only place I've ever seen shows in Bell County where they will thank John Grace, the tourism director in Bell County, because they know how much it means to him. They're all friends with him. It's a bizarre place. I did go to Bourbon and Beyond. I went on Friday, which was, um, I really wanted to see SG Goodman. Tyler Childress covered one of her songs recently. If you if you aren't familiar with her, Space and Time, that's how I discovered her. She was one of the first sets. We saw, I mean, just a few favorites from that day. Uh, SG Goodman was great. Jason Isbell played. It was a okay set. I've seen Jason a bunch um, and from like front row for his full set. So uh, at a festival like that, like an hour, he's just got such an expansive catalog that I think it's really tough in that environment. But Brandy Carlisle put on the best show I've ever seen. I'm, I've thought about it. And I can't think of a better show. I keep saying it's like maybe the best show, but I just can't think of another show where I've seen a better set. It's like an hour and 10 minutes and it was just mind numbing. My wife really liked her coming into that and she laughed and she said, oh my God, like I can't believe anybody can be that good in person. That, or like not even she said that much better and she didn't mean it as an insult she liked brandy but when she walked away it was just mind blown of how much of a performer she is yeah and and then um kings of leon played that night and i was not a fan we left halfway through <laughs> <laughs> i like kings of leon the first two albums are great but i yeah. don't care for any other later stuff yeah i'll give you that yeah i've seen them several times yeah, uh, but I thought it was just an incredible lineup. But what you said about Laurel Cove, I mean, obviously we're from there, and, and yeah. I don't even think it's biased. It's just, it's just a great concept, great 
great. Oh, uh, dude. I mean, it's just the vibe at Laurel Cove is just unreal. I mean, um, I can't explain how cool it is to like Kelsey Walden to play, who was on John Prine's label. She's talking about a uh, song. She's like, oh, they played this song with John Prine or something. And then she's walking around with people after that. I mean, a lot of these people aren't uber famous, but to me, you know, the, the relationships there of like, man, John Prine handpicked her. And I had tickets to see John Prine for the first time a month after he died. Yeah, it was, it was horrible. I, I, my wife that night, uh, the day he died, she came in and I was sitting, listening to John Prine in the dark with a bourbon in my hand. And she just went upstairs, like didn't say anything. I listened to his music for like two hours. It truly in mourning, dude, I was crushed, <laughs> but like being close to people like that, uh, you know, Arlo played last year. Arlo is always a fun time. He played in Middlesbrough last night, actually at the fall festival. I wanted to go, but I couldn't that show. If you like country music, bluegrass, Americana, any of that genre, that is as good as it gets. There's no better curation of music than that. Yeah, well said. So we're big on tradition. Obviously, we've talked about it several times, but we always ask everybody this question. It's always interesting to hear. But what's the first thing that comes to mind, comes, rolls off the tongue when you hear the word Appalachia? Oh, man, I don't know how to word it. Um, hardened come to, comes to mind. Uh, I think of even like the men's face. You see it like this weathered look that place goes through so much adversity. There's no place in the world. That's why we're cranking out these great songwriters is because to be a great country writer, you, you have to know how to tell a story. And in order to tell interesting stories, you have to have seen some stuff, right? It's like, like, or have a really crazy imagination. But I think a lot of these guys there, it's not hard. I shouldn't say it's not hard. There's no shortage of narratives for a Tyler Childers or a Sturgill or a Chris Stapleton or a Cole Chaney to sit down and find Nick Jamerson. You know, these guys, uh, really Nick Jamerson kind of paved the way through a lot of that, but they were singing about the adversity that people in that area face. And I've always found it interesting. It's just a very hardened person that you'll find there. And, and a lot of people will come and it, it can, it can be off-putting. It's a culture shock uh, because it's not necessarily the most welcoming vibe at times uh, as an outsider. And I had to, I tried, my wife, again, been from Chicago or her family's from Chicago. She was born here, but her family's very much got Chicago culture, I would say. And I had to explain to her, you know, every time an outsider comes into that region, they take advantage of us. They, they exploit us. They're mocking us. You know, that, that you guys probably saw that, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he did a photo series in Harlan a few years ago and it was just garbage. He showed up with a narrative in his mind that he wanted, you know, kids holding Mountain Dew bottles and that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, if you want to find some of that, you can find it. And let's let's be real, Kentucky in particular, we are among some of the worst stats in the country. But a lot of these people in the fact that they do survive through that are hardened and they're tough as nails. I think you look at uh, something like the flood, you know, what they've gone through. They didn't wait on FEMA and all this stuff. People are out there in their own boats and duck boats and, and kayaks. They're out there saving each other. And that at its core, I thought was Appalachia. We don't, it's like, we don't need the outsiders. We're not going to wait on you guys because if anything, when you show up, you know, we kind of expect to be made fun of. I mean, that's like, you know, the tornado and the flood this year, people are like, Oh, you shouldn't vote for Rand Paul. Like that's what we get from outsiders, you know? Yes. So I think when, when I think of Appalachia, the, uh, a good, <laughs> an interesting way to close this thought up is there's suspicion that, you know, Appalachian dialect is about as pure as it was when they can't people came over because we have so little outside influence there's pockets in appalachia where the language has not changed over the last 150 years versus kids watching youtube like bro you know all this like it's very different right and so i would say that in itself tells you like we've been here the longest and and, and made it through with little change and i i think like 
if the world were to slowly degrade, you know, with all the stuff that's going on, all this crazy talk of like civil wars and stuff, my, my bet would be on Appalachia to be there through it all. Like, I think like it's a very tough place. It's a very hardened people. They care about each other. You know, while I I don't live there right now, that would be one of the first things. If, if somebody handed me uh, $10 million tomorrow, the first thing I'd be doing is like trying to find property back there because it's so near and dear to my heart. Like, I love that region. I love the people. I love all my family there. You know, it, it's it's a very special place. I think that's a perfect answer and very well said. And I think you answered my question a little bit in, in that regard. But Neil and I come at this, I don't think we explained it, but we come at this podcast two different perspectives. Neil's the brother that went to college, but really never left the area. I'm the brother that left after college and never made it back, still trying to make it back and still calls it home. And so we wanted to ask you just obviously you live in Louisville now, you're born and raised there, but just Neil and I have talked a lot about when we leave and we come back to the region, seeing those mountains, we get that relief or we get that, I guess it's a comfort when we come back to the mountains, but just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? It's funny, man. I've, uh, we, we had this really morbid conversation at our company retreat, uh, or maybe it was after, right after the retreat of, of like, if I die, uh, somebody, somebody made a joke about taking their ashes back to where we did the retreat. Cause we had so much fun, I, but, <laughs> but I've literally thought about if I, I, I want to be cremated and I would want a split of, I can, I, I just always assume I'll die first. I'm probably going to be the first to go. My wife will have to like have my little container there when the new guy comes in. But I've, I've told her like, take, I want part, part of me has to go back to Bell County. Like that's where I'm from. That's where my heart is. That's where uh, I would want to rest in peace as they say. That's my home. Like that's home home. I've made a good home here in Louisville. I could not live in Louisville, but I tried not living in Kentucky and I made it nine months there's a little bit to be said of like, Oh, the guy that left Appalachia, kind of like you were saying, like I get, I get the friction there in saying that I love this and I don't live there. But I also think part of what I think about with that is that I have a chance here through our company, through the network that I'm in to be a representative of this in this network here. You know, I started off the show talking about the power of having those things at your fingertips. I go to investor events and I, I go, you know, I, I have I go to these networking parties. I speak at events here and I get to be a chance to show people what that region can do. And, and it doesn't connect. They don't think of that and think of somebody coming out of Bell County and building a tech company. I didn't think I could do that as a kid. I didn't think I could do that when I did it. Like, it was like, it's like how like you're taking that chance, you know, it's like, ah, I hope I can figure this out. I hope that I'm always representing the region well as what it can produce. So, um, there's a little bit of, you know, it's, it's a bit of a conundrum, but I hope that I can be a representative. That's a great vantage point And that's a great answer. That was really all our questions, but I wanted to ask you this since uh, you're a fellow Kentucky boy. I think I would be remiss to not ask you, not necessarily Appalachia, Kentucky, but all of Kentucky in general. What's your favorite bourbon? Mm, um, probably Rowan's Creek right now. Okay. Yeah. I'm not the bourbon nerd. My co-founder Zach is. I know that I like, um, I like a lot of the single barrels. I like, uh, I like bullet. I like, but like, I don't have these like high price bottle affinities. I like to find the the cheaper ones that are still really good. You can make me an old fashioned with an old foe and I'm totally fine. <laughs> there you go. Brad, thanks so much for your time, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for really, like you said, representing Eastern Kentucky, representing Appalachia and all these networks that you're in. 
Yeah, thanks for what you guys are doing too. I think I think the show concept is really cool. Um, if anybody wants to find me anywhere, most active on LinkedIn and TikTok. I know it sounds funny, but uh, I do kind of like TikTok. It's funny. I'm founding dot father on TikTok, LinkedIn, just Brad Luttrell, and then I'm on Twitter and I'm on Go Wild. So uh, would love to connect with you all there. You can go to downloadgowild.com and try it out, or you can find it in the App Store. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Neil, just to hear the story of how he started Go Wild from the entrepreneur side, remove what Go Wild is. It's really a cool tale of how, you know, you put your heads together. If you have an idea, you can get something accomplished. That's really amazing, Will. I mean, uh, you talk about doers like we talk about all the time on here. I mean, to take a to take an idea like that and to start a social platform, I guess just thinking of the idea sounds great on the surface. But as Brad so eloquently described, there's a lot that goes into it. And, you know, you don't think about that. The average Joe or the average lack of technology person like myself uh, doesn't think about all the intricacies that goes into that. And it's just amazing what they've been able to build so far. I expect huge things to come from this company. Yeah. And you can see how it bridged from his Appalachia roots. Obviously he's very proud of where he's from. He mentioned that in the, in the episode, he saw a need, a problem and he wanted to solve that problem. I thought it was cool of how he, just to show the way that he did that. Absolutely. Amazing. Also wanted to mention, you know, he talked a lot about the censorship of social media, about how it excludes hunters or tries to shame hunters. I wanted to mention an article that he just wrote titled Elon isn't the problem. Social media's censorship problems extend beyond Twitter. And it's all about what kind of what he spoke about in the episode of how Hunt, the hunting community has been excluded or has been shamed in a lot of these platforms. It's an interesting yeah. read. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes, for sure. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up and I uh, can't wait for you to share it on our on our platform as well. But what a great episode. Fellow Bell Countyan, an Appalachian at heart, now living in the big city. We asked him that specific question. Did he have to move to the big city in order to get this accomplished? And while he said there is a, more of a network in the urban environment, more of density, more of a network in regards to building something like this or in regards to entrepreneurship, it doesn't have to start there. It can start in small town Appalachia if you have the resources and have the will. Yeah, it's getting a lot easier now, I think, for sure. We've come a long way, still a ways to go. You can definitely, definitely do this anywhere. I have to ask you this, Neil. Are you a member of Go Wild yet? I am now. Absolutely. It's a cool site, right? It's awesome. Yeah, for sure. If you're a hunting enthusiast or even a part-time hunter or even someone who has just an inkling of that they would like to try it. I mean, it's a perfect place to learn as much as possible about hunting and hunting in a sustainable way. It talks about safety in regards to hunting. It has all the gear. It's just a cool site, man. It's a great idea and they've really done a good job. I got to be honest. I, I like to get on there and being able to, to find gear, even though I'm I'm not an avid hunter. I can at least look like one by, by using cheap cheat notes from from this this uh <laughs> app <laughs> in tradition of uh of our show will do you have an app biz of the week for me 
this week? You know, I do. I think it would be typical to say the app biz was what the show was about, which is go wild. But I wanted to mention another, you can call it a business, I guess. I wanted to mention it briefly before we talked about go wild in, in the exit. But, you know, we talked all about inclusion and, you know, the importance of inclusion, especially in hunting. And that was part of the reason of why Go Wild started was because of being shamed or being excluded from some of the social media platforms because they are part of the hunting community. Well, also part of the hunting community, a lot of the times when you think of the hunting community, you think of a white male. But in tradition of inclusivity, there's a really cool website and TV program out there. It's called Non-Typical Outdoorsman TV. You can find it at Non-Typical Outdoorsman doorsman.com. I think it's fairly new. I think it actually has a couple seasons though, maybe into season two. His name's Eric Morris. He's a military veteran. He's an African-American and he just saw a need to show the history of African-Americans in hunting. The show is dedicated to improving diversity in the outdoors. I think it's a really cool idea to show that you know, there is diversity in hunting and there needs to be more diversity in hunting, not only African-American, but female and other ethnicities. But this is just a really cool concept. He, he, he does his own TV show. He's not a big game hunter. He's a sustainable hunter that really hunts for sustenance and talks about gun safety, talks about all kinds of things on his episodes. So if you want to check that out, it's Eric Morris. It's nontypicaloutdoorsman.com. And his program is the Non-Typical Outdoorsman TV Show. He's from Talladega County, Alabama, the northern part, the Appalachian part of Alabama. And he now resides in the Appalachian part of Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. So check it out. But really, the business of the week is none other than Go Wild. Yeah, Will. Check them out. TimeToGoWild.com. Brad Luttrell, thanks again to him for coming on the show. And what an amazing representative of Appalachia he is and uh, continues to be. And uh, we're super proud of him as Appalachians and uh, super proud of this social media outlet for hunters all across, anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, I can't wait to see the next level of Go Wild. Yes, sir. Looking forward to it. Well, Neil, I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs. Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.